Hello and welcome to Happy Place. I'm Fern Cotton and this podcast is the antidote to any despair and hopelessness that you might quite understandably be feeling at the moment. That's my hope anyway. Today, oh, today, a woman whose capacity to keep hoping is second to none. I am thrilled. I am honoured. I am tingling with excitement. This week's Happy Place is with Dr. Jane Goodall. I think we need hope to live. When when money came to an end for studying the chimps, or was about to come to an end, you know, you hope that your grant proposals or your visits to talk to people, you hope that it's going to lead to success because you wouldn't bother to do it otherwise. When you're sick and fighting illness, you hope you're going to get better. So hope is in almost everything. Jane is, of course, a world-renowned conservationist and naturalist. For over 60 years, she's been travelling the world, teaching the rest of us about the threats facing chimpanzees in particular, as well as urging us to take vital action on behalf of our planet and all the living things on it. In 1991, she founded Roots and Shoots, an education programme that encourages children to make practical, positive changes for people, animals and our environment. And now she's written The Book of Hope, which I, for one, am so incredibly grateful for, because I think hope is something that we could all do with hanging on to right now. It's seriously lacking, but not impossible to have it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. All right, I'm beyond thrilled. Let's do it. Here's the show. Hello, Jane. Hello there. Oh, Jane, it's it's so wonderful to meet you. It's a complete honour to have you on the podcast. Are you well today? I'm the same as always, totally exhausted because I've never been as busy in my life since the beginning of the uh, pandemic. You know, sitting, looking at a screen all day, doing Zooms like this and interviews and virtual lectures are the hardest because when you're in a big auditorium, you know, you get the feedback. But giving a lecture with the same energy, otherwise why give it, just looking at that stupid little green (laughs) dot of a camera and to myself, oh, it's difficult. It's so odd, isn't it? I'm in the same boat, but to a lesser degree. And it is, it's seriously weird. And are are you in Bournemouth at home at the moment? Am I right? Yep. Yep. I spent a lot of time in Dorset this summer and it's one of my favourite, yeah, it's one of my favourite places. I love I love Door. I love Lulworth Cove, Studland. Oh, Lulworth, it's beautiful, yes. I love it there. It's gorgeous. We could, we could have met, couldn't we? I know. You know what? I'm always swimming in the sea there. All year round, I'll go in the sea in Lulworth. I love Good it. for you. Yeah, it's beautiful. So, look, I want to talk about this phenomenal book that I was lucky enough to get an early copy of, The Book of Hope, A Survival Guide for an Endangered Planet. And it seems like... We've never needed a book about hope more than now because we are on a daily basis bombarded with some pretty depressing and at times scary stuff, whether it's around the the pandemic and the confusion going on there, uh, the, the ripple effects of that outside of the virus, whether it's suicide, misdiagnosed cancer. And then we've got on top of this political corruption. We've also got... Um, you know, females being suppressed around parts of the world. And then we get to the climate crisis. It's sort of endless and terrifying. And at times it feels hard to have hope. Have Mm. you felt that more recently? It's been more tricky. It's more tricky because things have got worse. There's no question. 
But, you know, at the same time, there have been amazing things happening. And I find that the more we share the good things that are happening, um, the more people can cope with the depression. Because if she can do it, I can do it. If he can do it, I can do it. Mm. And if she, he can make a difference, so can I. Yeah, I think positive stories are lacking, aren't they? We're so yeah. It's been so normalised that we only imbibe negative news. You know, it's so rare that you would get a positive story either on a news programme or in the newspaper that it would stand out. And it seems like that's a key element to hope that we also have a fair balance of, yes, there are some terrible things going on, but also we need positive stories to co- yeah. cultivate hope. Yeah, we really do. And, you know, if you get a a positive story in the main press, it's usually a little tiny thing at the side. So if you get that newspaper online, you don't get those. So they're lost. And yes, you get good news on YouTube sometimes, but it, it needs to be out in the mainstream media. That's what needs to happen. I know. You have to dig around for good news. And, and that seems like a massive shame because, you know, even reading your book, there are numerous stories of hope in there and some amazing things, whether it's your own initiatives, Roots and Shoots, or there's tons of beautiful rewilding projects that are happening globally. Super, we don't yeah. hear about them. No, no. People that say rewilding, what's that? Yeah. And yet there's huge areas of Europe which... Uh, you know, the different countries have joined together to make this sort of corridor of wilderness and wolves and bears and things are coming back. And it's very exciting. And even in little old Britain, we've got the beavers. <laughs> yeah, this is it. We need to hear about these beavers and these corridors yes. of, of green because otherwise... It's so easy to fall into hopelessness. I I certainly this summer, with all the sort of doom and gloom that's been pushed on us, I I had a few moments of feeling, and I'm usually a very sort of high energy and relatively naturally hopeful person, but I definitely fell into some pits of despair with just thinking, what is going on? And, you know, what, what can I even do to help in any tiny way? And I felt a bit hopeless at times. Have you ever reached that place where you felt like, what's the point? No, never quite reached that place. I've been depressed and the depression makes me angry and determined to do even more. And, you know, you mentioned roots and shoots. If our children lose hope, then we've had it because they're growing up to inherit the horrible mess that we've made. So roots and shoots started back in 91 because I was meeting young people, mostly high school, university age, in all countries who seemed to have lost hope, even back then. And they said to me, basically all the same, you've compromised our future and there's nothing we can do about it. Well, yes, we have not only compromised, we've been stealing their future for years and years and years, not all just now, it goes way back. But is it too late? No, I'm convinced, and luckily it's not just me, that there is this window of time, but it's it's a small window and it's closing. So we've got to get together now, take action now before it's too late. So when I get these feelings of horrible things happening, I mean, the most recent is, um, is what's happened in Afghanistan, which is chilling. Yeah. And there's nothing I can do about that except we can help refugees from from Afghanistan, I suppose. But um, apart from that, when it's climate change and things, then, you know, if, if there's something everybody can do, something everybody can do. And your little bit may seem pointless, but when it's millions and then billions of little bits, then you begin to see, you know, we can. And also consumer pressure. You know, think of... Think of the people who are now aware. That That's one of the positives. People are more aware. They understand more. And so they're deciding, well, if that product is made unethically, if it's unfair wages or harming the environment or if it's cruel to animals, like factory farms, uh, then I'm not going to buy it. And big corporations are changing, not only because of that. I was talking to the head of a big corporation in Singapore the other day. And he said, well, Jane, there are two reasons why corporations are changing. One is this consumer pressure. Uh, Two, 
they see the writing on the wall that if they carry on using up our natural resources faster than nature can replenish them, that's the end of their business too. Mm. So they're changing. And then he said, oh, no, there's something else. I've got two children. And they said to me, Daddy, you cannot go on hurting the planet. It's our future. He said, well, I felt, oh, gosh, yes, they're right. <laughs> they, they are right. And, and it's, you know, it's so important that we remember we've got the agency and we can vote with our cash. We can vote for where we want to buy things and how we want to buy things. And as you've said, the big corporations have to follow suit. Otherwise, you know, on a sort of greed level for them, they're in yes. trouble. But yeah. it, but it's so funny because, you know, we we can see stats very easily. It doesn't take long to find the sort of stats that we've got this window that you've spoken of maybe 20, 30 years where we have to make huge change to save biodiversity and to keep our planet in any kind of good shape. But it doesn't feel like we're acting urgently yet. Do, do you no. think that's because we still weirdly have sort of compartmentalised it to be an environmental problem rather than a human problem, although they are the same thing? Yeah, they are. Yeah, that's that's the subject of a lot of my talks that we are part of and we depend on the natural world. Even if we live in the middle of a city, we depend on it for clean air, water, food, shelter, everything. And what we depend on, though, is healthy ecosystems. And I like to think of an ecosystem as made up of this. It's like a glorious living tapestry of the life forms, the animals and the plants in that ecosystem. And, you know, as each species disappears from the ecosystem, it's like pulling a thread from the tapestry. So in the end, that tapestry will hang in tatters and the ecosystem will collapse. That's happening. Yeah. And this is what we, you know, that's why all of these things that we face are all interrelated. None of us can do all of them, but luckily um, we can inspire others to do their bit in what they're passionate about. You know, some people want to help other people in trouble. Some people want to help animals. Some people want to help the environment. And that's what Roots and Shoots is all about. Each group chooses three projects, one to help people, one to help animals, one to help the environment. Or it can be one big project that encompasses them all. Mm. And, you know, when, when children and adults take action and do something like cleaning a stream, cleaning up litter, um, volunteering in a soup kitchen and making people happy, then they get this feeling of, of satisfaction and that encourages them to do more. And the more they do, you know, this hope is contagious and more people will get involved. And that's happening too. It's not happening fast enough, but people like you, you can make a huge difference with your podcast in spreading this message. Every one of us matters and has a role to play. Every single person. It's such an important thing for us to all remember because I think often we feel so overwhelmed by the size of the problem that we lose a sense of what we're supposed to do. Like, what is the action I'm supposed to take? But you've just listed some extremely simple things we can all do. We can all go and pick up litter from our local park. We can all go to a beach if we live by the coast and help collect litter off the beach or help a neighbour in need. You know, we, we've all got the the propensity to do that but I think sometimes we get lost in the size of the problem and think well, well a that's not going to count as you just mentioned but yeah. also where where do I start but but it's simple stuff simple stuff and you know this saying that goes round and round irritates me so much think globally act locally but do it the other way around act locally understand that all around the world there's people just like you taking local action then you dare think globally Mm, yeah. And and we've had to do that to an extent with the pandemic, but it's been on this really acute matter. And you deliver this extremely important message at the end, at the end of the book saying, yeah, you know, of course, we know the pandemic has caused huge amounts of pain and trauma for people. But we must not get distracted because the far, far bigger threat. And this isn't something that we see on the news every day. It's perhaps a story when there has been an extreme crisis, but the much much more imminent threat is the climate crisis and the loss of biodiversity. But we're still, we're so distracted still. Yeah, except, you know, there's one 
Well, I don't want to say it's a good thing because for some people it's devastating. But the fact that climate change has now affected parts of Europe with flooding, that it's affected New York, New Jersey, and Louisiana and so on, with terrible, terrible flooding and hurricanes and destroyed whole villages. The fact that it's now coming to the wealthy countries who've been responsible after all for creating all these greenhouse gases, you know, that's, that's, that's a wake up call for people who have felt it's nothing to do with me. Now they realize it is to do with me. Mm. And if we don't change, this flooding can, can come and devastate me and these fires which are because the planet is warming up, that they might they might come to me. I mean, these fires in Siberia, that they're, they're so huge that the government's given up. They're not even trying to put them out. Yeah, I think it really is like a call to action. I, yeah. I think it's going to wake up more people, but governments will they wake up? Hmm. I don't think so anytime soon because the pressure's been on for so long and and we still witness such corruption and also um oblivion to it seemingly and and i think that's when we can feel hopeless too like what why aren't the people in charge of you know whole countries and states doing stuff but yeah. you know we can't we can't rely on them i think we've realized no. that no we can't i mean no. you know they they just today i read that britain is opening up a coal mine oh. Yes. <laughs> and Australia's got all these coal mines destroying a beautiful area. And it's it's very depressing, but makes me angry. Mm. I'm going to get more people to understand that what they do does make a difference. I mean, where does... When we're looking at these situations, which are scary and cause anger, they're, they're, two, they're two reactions we're going to have, fear and anger. What place do fear and anger have alongside hope? Are they useful or are they merely debilitating? Uh, it depends on the person. In some cases, it can lead to depression, despair. And that's, that's sort of the downward trend. But, well, if I take myself, it, we, need, we need the anger, but... I don't think there's any use fighting the responsible people by pointing fingers at them, by accusing them, um, challenging them. I think what we have to do, people must change from within. We have to reach the heart. And yeah. to reach the heart, well, for me, it's telling stories, telling stories that that's can, and you may not even you may not even realize that you did make a difference. You may leave a meeting thinking, oh, well, I tried, I did my best. But then sometimes you find out later, my goodness, that person did change. And maybe maybe it was that story I told him that reached into his heart. Mm, it's the heart, isn't it? It's like you just described a moment ago with the big CEO and his kids. You know, your kids are going to go straight to your heart. They're not going to... Yeah point fingers and, and and throw stats at you, they're going to make your heart hurt because they're saying, Dad, you can't do this to our future. And it's so interesting, such a huge part of what I do with this podcast, I think really is just letting people tell stories and then we all have a greater understanding of each other or if it's global issues like this, to, to really see the human level and the human impact. It's As you say, it's got a... It's got to hit the heart. It has to hit the heart. It has to hit the heart. Um, <clears throat> what about action without hope? Does that just lead to apathy? Um, I'm, I'm not sure. I think if action, if your action doesn't give you hope that you've made a difference, well, if you're cynical or, or a little bit simple, I don't know because, you know, any... Anybody with a reasonable brain, when they've done something that's made a good difference, will understand that. Yeah. But, you know, there is this, there are these three huge problems to be solved. And sometimes they seem insoluble. One of them, perhaps the easiest to address, 
is to alleviate poverty because if you're really poor, you can't make those ethical decisions and you destroy the environment because you've, you've got to, to get some money to live, to get more land, to grow food. Um, secondly, which seems very hard for many people, but kids get it, and that's to reduce our unsustainable lifestyle. I mean, my lifestyle's unsustainable, even though I try. Um, I expect yours is too. I mean, yeah. you know, we have privilege and we have more stuff than we need. Yeah. And, you know, it's not suggesting everybody goes back to, you know, being like a hermit and, and living very, very, very simply. No, that, that won't happen. But just to think about what you buy and, and how often you buy and do you make waste and that sort of thing. And then finally, which kind of underlies everything else, if we discount corruption, which somehow I don't know how we get rid of that it's mm. beyond me, um, except through our youth who are beginning to understand. Yeah. Anyway, the third one that we must at least think about is our growing human population. You know, the seven point something billion of us now. I thought it was 7.2. Somebody told me it was 7.8, but over 7 billion. Um, and already we're using up natural resources in some places faster than they can be replenished. Yeah. And by 2050, that's round the corner. It's supposed to be closer to 10 billion. So if we carry on with business as usual, which some people seem determined to do with their head in the sand, then what's going to happen? We're in deep trouble. Yeah, we're in deep trouble. And you know, there's something else I, I would love to put together, a small group of of real thinkers, innovators, people who care deeply about the future. Because so often you're worried about a certain problem and you think, ah, I've got the solution. And it does seem to solve the problem, but at the same time, it leads to another problem. And there was one example just the other day, the camel racers in the UAE, they used to have child jockeys on the, on the camels and they were kind of tied on. And then there was a huge commotion about that. So they replaced the child jockeys with electronic devices, which was A, much crueler to the camels mm. because they could be tortured from a distance. But for the child jockeys, and their families, they'd lost their income and they were destitute. So it needs everything thought ahead. Okay, that will cure that problem. But if we cure that problem, maybe there's another one we have to cure. We need to think ahead. Without a doubt. And that's going to take many minds who specialise in, in many areas. And going back to your those three problems there, there's a couple of things that sprung to mind. On problem one, looking at poverty, we had a brilliant man on this podcast called David Katz, who runs the Plastic Bank. And and he said exactly the same to me. And it was the first time I'd heard it, which I, I'm sad to say, but it was the first time I'd heard that unless we sort out poverty first, the environmental issues will just, they'll never be solved fully. We have to sort that out first. And, and he has set up plastic banks in areas that live under the poverty line where people in the local communities can go out, collect plastic in the environment, bring it back and then get credit on a card that they can then feed their family with, etc. So it's solving two problems, but helping the community and integrating with the community, which was a beautiful thing. And that for me, I'd never heard. And, and, I, and it's a shame that I hadn't heard that. I thought, no, we must sort out the environment. But but like you've just said, we, we've got to, we've got to look at poverty and we've got to yeah. look at how we solve that. Yeah. And then on your second point, looking at sort of corruption and, and greed and, and the sort of normalisation of, of how excessive our, our lives can be. Do you think that because, you know, obviously human intellect has caused all of these problems, but human intellect can also help with the solutions, but probably only when hope is teamed with wisdom. Do you think yes. that wisdom can outwit greed? It depends on the proportion of wise to stupid people, doesn't it? Yeah. Or wise to, to greedy people. Um, I think it, it, it can solve it can solve a piece of the problem, but I'm hoping our young people, you know, they're already began in 91. So some of them have positions in business and government. 
and somehow they keep their Roots and Shoots values with them. I don't know why, but they, they seem to. I've met them all over the place. And they're taking that wisdom, you could call it. It's respect, respect for each other, respect for the environment, respect for animals. And they're making wise decisions in their in their adult life. Yeah. Oh, well, I guess because they're young and they have young minds, everything, they're you know, so sponge-like, everything going in sticks. I guess if we look at our own childhoods, we can see, you know, how much influence we've taken from dominant people in our life, parents, teachers, and, and that stuff sticks. So it's so brilliant that this is positive stuff sticking. Yeah. They can go forward and, and, and make amazing change. I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of yours, Jane, as millions of people are. And I find it, I find your work as a naturalist so interesting because it teams so beautifully the, the, the scientific understanding of the natural world, but it but the the important integral part is this innate intuitive understanding of it as well as the scientific and that's a relationship that you have with the natural world and that seems to be the bit that in the west we're missing we we don't have a relationship with the natural world anymore we see it as separate we don't communicate with it as a lot of indigenous um, communities still will or ancient people might have we've just we've lost touch and I wonder if we can reverse time or look to these indigenous communities to try and get that relationship back. Or are we too far gone? Yeah, we have to. I mean, you know, like I say, we depend on the natural world. And it, it's very sad to me. I mean, there's people in inner cities, they don't see nature. They, they're divorced from it. And then you get wealthy children living in beautiful places, what do they do? They spend all their time on social media and video games. They're not looking. I've I've seen these young people and they're in the most beautiful place and there's so much of nature going on and they they don't they don't see it. Mm. And you know, you can find the natural world in a city. And also one of the things that I feel really, really important is to bring nature into the city to do urban tree planting. And if you go to a big city, well, I'm not going to talk about Europe, but certainly in America, you can tell if it's an affluent neighborhood because as you drive through, there's trees and parks and gardens, and then you come to a deprived area, it's all concrete. And Children particularly, you know, they need this relationship with nature for good psychological development. Mm-hmm. And you can, pr- you can prove that the other way around, that uh, people who've been traumatized by, by some kind of conflict, women who are being raped, for example, they can gradually come out of this terrible despair. Being with nature or being with an animal, like a dog, that makes such a difference. And, you know, you talked about the influence in childhood. Well, my influence is all around me. There's my mother. I credit a huge amount of who I am to her because she was such a positive. You know, when I dreamed of Africa at 10, everybody laughed at me. We didn't have money. The war was raging. And I was just a girl. <laughs> We're going back 80 plus years now. And uh, no, 70 plus no, 80 plus years. And you know, so it's just so long, but I've been on this planet a long time. Anyway, um, but mum said, if you really want something like this, you're going to have to work awfully hard and take advantage of every opportunity. And if you never give up, you might find a way. And I've shared that around the world. And people have written and said, Jane, thank you. You taught me because you did it. I can do it too. I wish mum was alive to know how many people have benefited from her wisdom. And then there's also my dog, Rusty. He taught me that animals uh, have personalities, minds and feelings, so that when I got to Cambridge, after being two years with the chimps, and I was told I couldn't talk about chimps having personality, mind or feeling, I knew they were wrong (laughs) because of Rusty. It's such a beautiful way of recognizing nature you know with your own pets i've got two old cats they're 20 i mean they're 
They're gorgeous little old ladies. I just adore them. And I've had them, you know, since I was 20 years old. And they've been, they've moved all around the place with me. They've seen me in good spirits. They've seen me through dark times. And like you say, it's such a healing thing to look in an animal's eyes. And you you feel their love. Like, you know, they love you and they trust you. And me and my husband talk about it all the time. Isn't it so strange we have these little creatures walking around in our house and they know us, they recognise us and they trust us. That is the best gift. And, you know, there was a, I just read yesterday that they did experiments where the reward for a dog doing something right was either his favourite treat or reunion with his mistress or master. Mm. And the dogs chose the reunion. So Isn't gorgeous. that lovely? Well, it's a proper yeah. friendship. You you can when you've got pets, you feel it. It's such a deep, deep bond. And also, just rewinding a little bit, but when you were talking about the importance of nature for healing, I've a hundred percent experienced that myself. When I've, even if I on a very base level feel a bit stressed out, I intuitively will go in the park I'm very lucky I live near a a very lovely big park and I get out in there and I walk and it's instant you know there's no messing about and and when we look at kids today it is really hard as a parent of this generation it's so difficult because we can't um, deny our kids completely of screens because they're using them in schools now and some of their homework's administered on screens but it is a battle because, of course, by nature, they're addictive. And, and the people creating these apps and these, you know, whatever they are, tablets, they know that they're addictive for the kids to be playing games on, etc. But equally, I know if I like I said at the start, you know, we got to Dorset this summer. My eight year old, if he's in the sea, he puts his waders on, he gets in the sea. He's obsessed with the sea and sea life. He is a different kid. He's a different kid and his behaviour after that experience is different. And I know it's it's not easy for everybody to do that, to get to the sea or to get to a park, but it, it makes such a difference. But, we, but we're battling against it with these kids and their screens. It's really hard, really yeah. hard. Like with the screen situation, sometimes you just feel like you're battling against it a bit and it's just tiring. Yeah, that's why... You know, we we start roots and shoots with some, even some preschoolers, mostly kindergarten. And if you get them early on to have a chance to be in nature, even if it's just a little garden, uh, then they, they're so fascinated. Like your son, they become completely transfixed. Mm. I saw one little boy, he was three, I think, and he was watching a snail. Uh, it was out in the garden here. And he watched the snail, and you know how snails just glide along the ground. And he was obviously puzzled. He picked it up, put it on the window pane, and ran inside to look. And I mean, that's, isn't that amazing? Gorgeous. It's gorgeous. It? It's my yeah. favorite thing to watch my kids in the sea. And, and they don't get bored. You know, we'll go looking for crabs for hours, and mm. anything else would not hold that concentration but it is and also we mustn't forget that we can have that experience as adults it doesn't crabbing doesn't have to be for little kids it can be equally as therapeutic and healing to go and just be in nature and and observe it rather than thinking I must do emails I must scroll on my phone and it's just we've got to take better care of our own minds and a very obvious way is is being in nature I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One of my favourite documentaries during this lockdown period that we've been in and out of lockdown was uh, watching your documentary, Jane, and um, following your whole career right back to the early days where you were the, you know, the founding founding doctor out there looking at 
chimpanzees behavior and as you said detecting these personalities and emotions and these traits that that hadn't been accepted before and and really on that documentary you know witnessing your relationship with nature what what did you learn about hope from the chimpanzees well i'm not sure i learned anything about hope from them i mean people say is hope confined to humans well obviously it's not i don't know how animals um, feel hope but uh, when you're when one of your cats or both of them are hungry i don't know what they do but some cats meow and rub against your leg yeah well they're hoping surely that you'll feed them <laughs> i mean they very much do so. it if, <laughs> there's no reason to do it if they don't have an expectation mm. of reward so the chimps they they obviously have the same sort of feelings they're like us in so many ways but the, the thing about the, those early days for me was the importance of hope for me because when the chimpanzees were all running away from me at the beginning you know there was only money for 6 months and i was getting really depressed that would they would i gain their trust before it was too late and everything ended but all the time i was hoping that this would happen and that took me up into the mountains every morning at 5:30 and back at dusk and of course it did paid off that patience and but i surely wouldn't have done that if i hadn't hoped that i could succeed mm, that it's so interesting looking at um i guess the relationship between time and hope because as you've just said there and you know i saw it myself in the beautiful documentary the the weeks and months that you had to spend hoping that you would gain trust from the chimpanzees and that you would be able to spend more time getting to know them to understand them to integrate peacefully into their world do you think there's ever a time you know this doesn't have to be related to the environment necessarily but in life is there ever a time to give up having hope and to you know give up hope on a dream or give up hope on a goal well i suppose if you find out that you've been hoping for something that's clearly totally impossible then it's not very sensible to go on trying to do that but otherwise i think i think we need hope to live you know like when when money came to an end for studying the chimps or was about to come to an end or you know this program we have to improve the lives of people living around chimp habitat kari we call it uh you know you hope that your grant proposals or your visits to talk to people you hope that it's going to lead to success because you wouldn't bother to do it otherwise so a hope is in almost everything when you're sick and fighting illness you hope you're going to get better perhaps many of us are much more hopeful than we actually think we are because maybe we we assume that it's exclusive to optimists but actually you're right if we are trying to do something as you say overcome illness or we're trying to reach a goal even if we don't recognize it ourselves hope is in there somewhere otherwise we mm. we wouldn't bother no that friday eat drink and be merry for tomorrow we die you know you wouldn't bother if you didn't hope and no. you know the, the interesting thing to go back for a second to my early days it was only when the chimps had accepted me that i could actually get this feeling of wonder and awe from the natural world from the forest because before that i was so totally focused on gaining the trust of the chimps learning as much as i could through my binoculars i didn't have time uh, to to appreciate the absolute beauty of this forest tapestry and of course that's something that's kept me going i i keep the forest inside all the time mm that's so beautiful um of course you've as well as getting to witness such awe and wonder you've had to face up to some really severe problems and challenges all driven by your your passion um for example helping to abolish testing on chimpanzees in laboratories and that's something you know reading it in the book you could tell it was a seriously painful experience for you having to walk into such a space and to see the beloved chimpanzees being confined and treated in such a way 
over the years when you've been faced with problems like that and you've actively wanted change, how do you get the balance of focusing on a problem so that you can actually get into action to help and not dwell on a problem which could lead to a feeling of depression or a feeling of being debilitated? I think it's probably because uh, very fortunately, I'm the sort of person who lives in the moment. And if you're living in the moment, you know, there's sometimes when you're fighting to find a way to help the chimps in the labs, but there's also moments when you're having supper with good friends and to, to be able to jump from the real problem that you're working on to the little things that happen around you I suppose that's just happened to me. I mean, it's no no conscious philosophy. It's just the way I am. Mm, that's a really important point because sometimes when we're faced with a big problem, say it is something that's that's big and gnarly on the news and we know that it's out there right now, we can often then feel guilty when we slip back into our everyday joy. But that's not helpful. As you've just said, being in the moment and being boosted by that joy, I imagine then helps you to get momentum and energy to do the work. Of course it does. I mean, being happy, having fun, laughing, that's all terribly, terribly important. And I mean, how would I couldn't get through life if I didn't have a sense of humour? Because, you know, even in the dire situations, there's often funny things that happen. Yeah, it's so true. I've just spotted one of my old cats walking past my window, actually. She's oh. a, a gorgeous black moggy called Tallulah and uh, she's completely deaf. So she often can't hear you walking behind her. But <laughs> oh, she's so she's so lovely. Um, towards the end of your book, I I was just loving the sort of accidental trip into spirituality that you ended up with, with Doug, who was interviewing you. And it's it's something that's deeply important to me. I'm, I'm not religious. I don't follow a doctrine, but I am. I'm, I class myself as someone that is very spiritual. I need to believe in something that is of a greater power. Otherwise, I do end up feeling a little bit bleak. And And you say in the book, you know, some people might be put off when you start saying words like spirituality. I'm I'm certainly not, but I understand that that people can be. But I think those who might be cynical towards it are probably overlooking the moments they've had in nature that were actually spiritual without them realising it. (laughs) I, 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 I can look back at... Countless times when I've been swimming in the sea, you know, at Lulworth Cove or at, at Studland Beach in Dorset, and I feel at one, I feel connected, I feel mm-hmm. a sense of joy that is inexplicable, it's not for any reason. To me, that's spiritual. Yeah, it is spiritual. It's a connection mm-hmm. with that great spiritual power, whatever he, she, it is. But it's lovely that scientists, even the top brains, starting with Einstein, well, not starting with him, but he was one of them, who've come to the conclusion, 100% there's there's intelligence behind the creation of the universe. And, you know, when people smugly, scientists smugly say, oh, well, we know how the universe was created, it was the Big Bang. Sure, but what created the Big Bang? (laughs) My mind explodes even contemplating it. But that's why, you know, it's lovely to have a sense of awe in something bigger because we don't yeah. know all the answers and we can't. No, we don't. And, you know, you just mentioned Sutherland. That's where I was nearly finished off when I was six, no, seven, seven or eight, because we'd gone for a little holiday in the war. It was the one place that was a very short strip where there wasn't barbed wire. And I don't know why. I think they forgot it. You know, our defences were so pathetic anyway. Um <laughs> And there was there was no barbed wire, so we could actually get onto the beach. And we had two friends staying with us, and we had a little. We'd gone there for a, a week's holiday, and very close to where I am. But you know, it was wonderful. Yeah. And we were in a little guest house just up the hill from the beach. And every day at twelve o'clock was lunch, and if you were late, you missed lunch. So, Mum always went the short way. Her friend with her two children always took the long way. And on this one day, mom said, well, I'm going the long way. And she never did. She had some dicey thing with her heart. And her friend said, but then we'll miss lunch. Mom said, well, you can go the other way, but I'm taking my children this way. And then 
I, st I remember so vividly looking up at the blue, blue sky and this plane very high up. And then from each side came two black cigar-like objects. And the mothers threw themselves onto their children. And there was this huge explosion and then another huge explosion. One of them was right on that path where we would have been. Oh, my God. And that's my mother. She had these... I don't know if you call them premonitions or, or was it telepathy with a German pilot or there she knew the been. exact moment when her when my father's brother was shot down over Egypt and died. She knew the exact moment she screamed and shouted his name and everybody said, What's the matter? And of course we didn't know then. That was the moment he was killed. Well, like you say in the book, there's no such thing as a coincidence. No, I don't think so. And, you know, there's mm. so much magic out there. That's what yeah. I love. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to explore. There's so much we'll never know. And that's exciting. Yes. I, I think science often pushes us to feel silly or foolish for, for believing in stuff that isn't statistically or medically or scientifically recognised. But yeah. that's so boring to me. It's horrible. <laughs> and, you know, the reason that... All these professors at Cambridge told me that only humans had personality, mind and, and emotion. Did they really mean it? Did they, did they truly, if they'd had a dog or a cat, did they believe it? No, but they couldn't prove it. Yeah. Therefore, you couldn't talk about it. Mm. The unproven is so exciting. Yes, it is exciting. Life is exciting. It is. You know. It is. And there's magic out there and we've got to be willing to let it in. Because if we if if we don't, we we won't see it. It won't be no, there. That's right. And also, you know, this indomitable spirit. That's one of my reasons for hope. The amazing people who do amazing things. Well, everybody has that, but they don't know it, and they don't grow it, and they're afraid, or else circumstances mean that they're actually unable to. But you know, some of these people, it's so extraordinary. People coping with disabilities like Chris Koch I talked about in the book and other people I know much better. And it's utterly incredible how they battle on and, and succeed. And it is this indomitable spirit. Yeah, and, and and it's empowering to know that we've, we've all got that inside of us because often I think culturally on, on a societal level, whether it be imbibed through the media, we're sort of squashed and told yes. we, you, you can't do this you can't do that or you mm. wouldn't cope with this situation or you know it could be just some somebody in your life that was prominent that told you you couldn't do something and and that takes hold but we can all break through those boundaries and we know that because like you mm. said you know you write about stories like this in your book I've certainly interviewed a plethora of people who have showcased that indomitable human spirit and it's it's a beautiful thing. And we've all got it lurking in there somewhere. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I love By the way, I hope your book, your advanced copy, is that one with photographs in it? It is. Oh, good. I've got all the pictures in there. It's not properly bound, good. but every picture, there's some beautiful pictures in there of Chris, yeah. who you just yeah. spoke of, and, and the chimpanzees, and um, the beautiful eagle feather that I was yes. mesmerised by that you, you take on a lot of your talks with a yeah. uh, condor feather. It's a beautiful book, and it, and I, I've been reading some pretty heavy stuff recently and I needed a break from the heaviness to read something that, you know, is deeply important and serious at times. But hope is what we need. We need yeah. hope yeah. and we need yeah. positivity to get through this, you know, seriously troublesome time that we're in for many reasons. And I urge everybody to get this book and read it because hope's the thing missing right now. It is missing. Yeah. And, you know, the one last thing I would say about hope and me is that I think because I, from five to ten, I lived through World War Two, And, you know, for a while it was Britain standing alone in Europe against the might of Nazi Germany. And it was hopeless. And yet, fortunately, we had Winston Churchill. Okay, he made mistakes. He made military mistakes. Some people hated him. But if we hadn't had Churchill with those rousing speeches, we will fight them on the beaches, we will fight them in the lanes, we'll fight them in the cities, we'll never be defeated. And he turned, there was an aside afterwards saying, 
and we'll fight them with the ends of broken bottles because that's all we bloody got. Mm, yeah. I mean, we need some big speeches right now. Yes. But I mean, you know, he, then, then he got Roosevelt in and that turned the tables. But for a while, if he hadn't stood firm, if he hadn't given the British such hope that we could succeed, that they coped with the Blitz. I mean, you're too young. You didn't live through that. Um, I, I lived through it and I saw the pictures of the Holocaust and I learned early on about human evil. But we we did win. And I think that's probably had a bigger influence on my feelings of hope now than almost anything else. Mm, it's incredible. It's incredible. And thank you for sharing that. And I, I, I can't express with words what a privilege this has been to talk to you, Dr. Jane Goodall, because... I'm a huge fan, a long-term fan, and I, I didn't see this coming. I didn't know if there'd ever be an opportunity to speak to you. And, oh, I mean, what an absolute joy it's been. I'm I'm so, so grateful, and I know that it's going to be uh, a very impactful conversation for my listeners to uh, to take on. So thank you. Well, it's been fantastic talking to you, and you must meet Mr. H. Oh, there he is, the famous is. Mr. H. Mr. H is always around. I love that. <laughs> so to end up with Mr. H says um, goodbye and get your children, Mr. H Jr. Yeah. And get them involved in Roots and Shoots and join our family of hope around the world. Oh, Mr. H, Jane's toy monkey making an appearance. I'm so glad that he did. I was hoping that she would bring Mr. H out. Oh, Jane, Jane, and your wonderful message of hope. Honestly, I this is why I love doing this podcast. What an opportunity to sit and chat to someone so wise with so much experience. And also, if you haven't seen the documentary, Jane, you're in for such a treat. You have to watch it. It's so, so beautiful. Thank you, Jane, for bringing back so much light into a world that, to be honest, has been feeling pretty bleak recently. And also, if Jane's being for real there, I literally can't wait to go for tea. Can we please? I, I need to go to Jane's house for tea. I really, really want to do that. Oh, really and truly, Jane, you've filled my heart and I think all the listeners' hearts with so much joy and optimism. Jane is a prolific writer and her latest book, The Book of Hope, is out right now. I mentioned in that chat that a few months ago I had been speaking with Plastic Bank founder David Katz. As I said, I absolutely have him to thank for opening my eyes to how poverty and climate change intersect. So that episode is well worth a listen if you enjoyed today. So please go and listen to it. It's in our archives. And if you hit the follow button, wherever you're listening to this right now, you can make sure you never miss a future episode of Happy Place. A massive thanks to Dr. Jane Goodall. A huge thanks to the wonderful producer of this podcast, Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio. And to you gorgeous, kind-hearted lot for listening. Thank you. Keep the hope and I'll see you soon.